wounded and crushed for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. He was whipped and we were healed. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. They divide my garments among them and they cast lots for my clothing. treated harshly, yet he never said a word. All who seek, see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Oh, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and fill him with grief. like you to bow with me if you would as we prepare to worship the Lord through looking into his word and what his word has to say. Let's pray. Father, on this Palm Sunday or the day we celebrate Palm Sunday, it's not Palm Sunday, it's the day we celebrate it. I pray that you would continue to speak to our hearts. We thank you for the reminders that we've had as we've Worship to you through the singing. And now as we go to a text that's a very somber text, I pray that your spirit would speak to each of our hearts because you know what we need to hear. You know what you want to do in each of our lives. And I pray, even as I've been reading and thinking and praying through this text, Father, I know that I'm not fully embracing all that's here, and I pray that your spirit would wash over each of our hearts, mine included, to grasp more fully the depth of these truths and apply them to our lives more consistently. Help us to receive your word for what it truly is, the word of God and not the word of men. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just one final thing. If you are a guest uh, here for the very first time, I would appreciate if you take the bulletin. And on the bulletin, there is an extra little flap. And if you would fill that out. And then as you leave, there is an offering box on the welcome table. And just slip that in the offering box. That would be great. And if you're one of our regular church family, uh, you can make use of that little additional uh, flap too. Uh, There's an opportunity for you to share prayer requests or ask for uh, assistance or help or whatever. So you can do that too. All right? That's great. Palm Sunday. And uh, it's interesting because here we are in Palm Sunday and we began, uh, we're preaching through the book of Matthew, and we covered Palm Sunday back in chapter 21, okay? And so it's been a long time for us, practically, to cover what really only took a few days 
in the life of Jesus. And so we come on Palm Sunday to really what we would more normally think of as Good Friday uh, in our mentality of thinking and what we, where we are in the text of Scripture. And so think in contrast to the Hosanna, Hosanna, as the crowd welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem, celebrating him as the King of Israel. In contrast to what we read today in the text in Matthew chapter 27 of the crowds now crying, crucify him, as we looked at previously last week, and now as that becomes a reality in the text this morning. I was thinking about this week and, and the text we're at, and I thought, you know, the, the unjustified horrors that are taking place in, in the Ukraine against the people of Ukraine showcases modern-day extent of human depravity. The things that are taking place against people who've done nothing to warrant it is, is atrocious. And it shows the depth of, of human depravity, but also stirs an appreciation for freedom, for liberty, and also helps steal them and, and us to fight for that liberty and to, to work to preserve it. And so just as the brave people of Ukraine are suffering and they're seeking to restore their, their freedom, so too uh, the Lord Jesus endured great agony at Calvary to secure our freedom and salvation from sin. So in the, in the crucifixion of Jesus, it seems to me that we see on full display the depth of human depravity. Set in stark contrast to the greatest demonstration of God's mercy. And so in Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 44, there are, at least we're going to highlight, three forms of agony that Jesus endured at Calvary. And they expose human depravity. But in exposing it, it encourages. It should serve, I think it serves as an encouragement for unbelievers, those who've been on the outside, those who have not relinquished their self-righteousness to yield and surrender to Jesus, that they would embrace God's mercy. They would say, yeah, okay, he did this. I'm, I'm, I'm accepting that. And for believers to exult in God's grace, it's like, wow, yeah, he did that for me. And that we would exult in his grace, but also that we would be, extend ourselves because of what he's done for me. Now I want to serve him. And that we would be also kind of uh, able to endure hardship because we look at Jesus and we say, here's what he did for me. And here's what he expects me to do for him. So here we go. I'm in Matthew chapter 27. I'm going to read through the text, verses 27 through 44. I'd invite you to follow along with me if you have your phone or you have an app on your phone or if you have a device that has a Bible app or if you have your Bible, physical Bible, that's always a good deal. And then if you don't, there should be a Bible underneath the seat in front of you somewhere close. I don't know what page it's on, but it's in Matthew chapter 27. I'm beginning with verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium 
and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they kneeled down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, and they, they took his robe off and put his garments on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they were coming out, of, out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, or Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine to drink mingled with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots, and sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And they put up above his head a charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, and come down from the cross. Or if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. And I read that as a question. I'm not sure how it has it in the ESV, but the NIV just puts it as a statement. It seems to me more as a question. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let him deliver him now if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers also, who had been crucified with him, were casting the same insult at him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. The first form of agony that I see in the text is that our Lord endured the mockery of the soldiers. And I see this in verses 27 through 31. See, painful mockery here comes in three forms. First of all, their adornment mocked him. The way they dressed him up and paraded him around was a a, a form of mockery. He had already been slapped and spit upon. We see this in Matthew chapter 26, verse 67. And then he was scourged. And I reminded us of the gruesomeness of the scourging, which was a whip with several leather uh, straps on it. That in, in those straps were embedded pieces, sharp pieces of shards of glass and metal. And then the victim was whipped repeatedly on the back, which would rip chunks of flesh and, and open up wounds, gaping wounds. And so it was a horrendously difficult, there was an extensive loss of blood and dehydration, and some people died just from scourging. That had already happened. And so now in the morning, after this had happened, the trial was done, he had finished this, they took him, the soldiers did, to the governor's residence, the praetorium. Okay, that's Pilate's, Pilate's place, and there were 600 of them, a whole cohort. Wow, this is like overkill, you know. Here we got 600 of them taking Jesus into this thing. And they gathered around him to taunt him, to torment him, and to tease him. And they dressed him up, the king of the Jews. They dressed him up and paraded him 
in a scarlet robe. A parody of his royalty. You know, they're making fun of him. Okay, he's supposed to be royal. We're, we're going to parade him up. We dressed him in a scarlet robe. And the scarlet robe was probably just a Roman soldier. You know, the Romans wore these robe, royal outer garments were red. They probably just took one of them off and put it on Jesus. And ironically, he was clothed by them in red. But later, he would be clothed willingly by the scarlet sins of all humanity. And he wore that on his own accord. So that those who believed in him might be redeemed. And they placed a crown of thorn on his head, which was a mockery of the, the woven uh, crown that a, that a king would have. And then they mimicked him by placing a reed in his hand to mimic a staff that would be there for someone who really was the king to signify his authority and to signify his power. You know, we say mimicry is the greatest form of flattery, right? I remember when our children were younger and my, my son was about six, five or six years old and, and I used to, at that time, I used to always wear a suit and tie. He said, why don't you do that now? Well, that's a discussion for a later day, okay? Uh, <laughs> I had to wear a tie every day in seminary, okay? And we referred to it as the cloth serpent uh, that we had to wrap around our neck, you know, to somehow signify that we were spiritual. That's another suggestion. So anyhow, my, my son, he, he said he, he, wanted to, he wanted to dress like dad. So we went out, we bought him a, a suit jacket and a tie. Boy, he put that tie on. I had to tie it for him and help him tie the tie. You know, it was a real tie and suit jacket. And he was just... Oh, he was beaming, you know, because he was dressed up like Dad. But this is a different story here. The, the mimicry of Jesus was no flattery. It was mockery of, of the Lord. They were mocking him, designed to humiliate him. And so we see that first form of mockery was the adornment. And then their approach mocked him. At the end of verse 29, we, we read at the end of verse 29 that, they kneeled before him and they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. He is horribly treated like he had been, he predicted this would happen in Matthew chapter 20, verse 19. He said that it would be, he would, and, and then we read it in Psalm 27, verse 2. It was prophesied of him that he would be mocked and mimicked and berated, and they would wag their heads at him and shake their heads and say, He's crazy. So first they kneeled before him in fake honor. They weren't worshiping him. They weren't having any sort of honor for Jesus, but they mocked him by kneeling before him. And then they proclaimed, Hail, King of the Jews, just like any good Roman would do if Caesar was present. They would cry out and hail the emperor. And so their, their mocking proclamation is the focus. What we don't see readily in the text is if you would trace verses 27 through 31, you would see that it, it kind of descends and then it centers on this hail, king of the Jews, and then it retraces what he's already done. It's in, the, in English, it's called a chiasm. It goes this way and this way, but the center point is the focus that Jesus is heralded as the king of the Jews. A proclamation that ironically reveals his true designation. They were saying it mockingly, but in fact it is the reality. He is the king of the Jews. And 
fascinating to me as we go through the text, we'll see it repeated three times. All in a mocking fashion, but in a real designation. So what they mock him as is what he truly is. He is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Jews before whom they should have bowed in humble worship and before whom we should bow in humble worship. Then they abused him. In verse 30, we see the text says, reveals two vulgar ways in which they mocked and made fun and abused him. They spat upon him and they took a reed and began to beat him on the head. You know, there's nothing more humiliating than for somebody to spit on you and spit in your face. And then the reed, the crown of thorns was around his head and they took the reed and they began to beat him on the head to drive the thorns into his skull to torment him and to mock him. And all the while, Jesus silently submitted to this reprehensible behavior. Robert was a rather large boy, and he was a little mentally challenged. And the kids in the neighborhood made fun of Robert. And on one occasion, I was present when Robert rose in anger and took the present mocker and threw them down on the concrete floor in the garage where we were all gathered. He'd had enough. He'd had enough. And here we have the king, the one who created the ruler of heaven and earth, being mocked, but no, in silence. Does he retaliate? Does he well up with anger and take his anger out on those around? No, not at all. Jesus willingly, as we were reminded in the, in the first service this morning, he willingly traded his glory in heaven for the humiliation of the cross. Being made in the likeness of man, he humbled himself and be found in form and fashion as a man. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. He didn't retaliate, but he suffered in silence without sinning. <laughs> because this was the Father's plan to provide us with pardon for the punishment we deserve. This is Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 and 8. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. And then verse 8, 53, 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the wrongdoing of my people to whom the blow was due. Everything he suffered we deserve. But none of what he suffered did we receive. If we know Christ as our Savior. The soldier's parody of Jesus' true identity 
as the king. You know, they're making fun of him as a king, and he really is. (laughs) And so the indignity of it and the injustice of it and the irony of it that the innocent ruler of heaven and earth suffered to save us magnifies our sin. He did it for me. He did it for you. He's innocent. He's the king. He's holy. He's righteous. We're not. It magnifies our depravity. And if we would receive what he did for us, it should motivate our gratitude and thanksgiving. Praise to him who reigns above in majesty on high. That we could enjoy the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life. He also suffered not just so that we could be redeemed and be grateful, but he suffered as an example that we should follow. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. For you have been called for this purpose, Peter speaking to believers, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you would follow in his steps. He who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, while being abusively insulted, he did not insult in return. While suffering, he did not threaten, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Okay, let's sign up for that. I I want people to say, make insults about me, and say all, speak all manner of evil against me falsely, And then I'm supposed to just be quiet and I'm supposed to entrust myself to him who judges righteously. Now, that's, uh, let's think about this. That's not just out in some uh, ethereal, intangible workplace or situation where we never, like, like that's at home. Like when I'm insulted and made fun of or I'm criticized. Yeah, and in my workplace. I'm just supposed to be like Jesus. Yeah, that's right. I'm just supposed to be like Jesus. And I'm not most of the time. But I praise God that he died for me anyway. And he died for you anyway. Before he is honored by all as the king, as Paul says he will be in Philippians chapter 2, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Christ to the glory of God the Father. Before he is exalted to that place in people's minds, he had to be crucified. And that's verse 31. And they mocked him, they took him, his robe off and put his garments on him and led him away to be crucified. Do you see in verse 27 they brought him in to mock him. In verse 31 they're taking him out to crucify him. Who? The king of the Jews. Secondly, our Lord endured the brutality of the cross. And he suffered the brutality of the cross in the text here. It lays it out in three stages. That's how I broke it down. First of all, there is the approach to the cross. He began his journey to Golgotha, Golgotha, 
verse 32, and they were coming out and they found a man. He started carrying his own cross, probably the cross beam of the cross that weighed about 200 pounds, but he had been weakened, okay? And he had been wounded and he was writhing in pain. In addition to all the physical draining of him, the dehydration and the extensive excruciating pain that he was suffering, he was, had endured and was feeling the effects of the emotional abuse and the emotional anguish. He had been betrayed by Judas. He had experienced the defection and desertion by the disciples. And previous to that, he had experienced the, the disappointment of those people who couldn't even pray with him. And then he experienced the denial by Peter and the mockery that he's undergoing right now. He was exhausted. Suffering severe lacerations, that's cuts. And probably dehydration. He was unable to continue carrying his cross. And so they called Simon. Simon of Cyrene. And Cyrene is... Probably Libya, modern-day Libya, North Africa, okay? North African. Was pressed into service. He was pressed into service to do something which Jesus had called his disciples to do, to take up their cross and follow him, Matthew 16, 24. And yet they were unwilling to do for Jesus. You think about that. Where are his disciples? He's on the way to the cross, carrying excruciating pain, the weight of the cross and his exhaustion. He falls down, and the Roman soldiers don't say, where are his disciples? His disciples don't say, oh, can we help Jesus? No, it's the Romans say, you help Jesus. I think at least it's appropriate for us to say that the disciples' failure portrays our potential fickleness. In spite of professed faithfulness, we are just as capable of failing to support Jesus or his cause. And it also emphasizes his faithfulness in spite of our proclaimed faithfulness to him, which is really not always the case. His faithfulness to suffer for us, to endure the pain. I was sitting at lunch one day in college, and uh, one of my acquaintances was telling, this was like after Christmas break, and he had been out hunting with some friends, and he said, you know, you know when you see in the movies these people that get shot, and then they get up and they run away, you know, and they go off like that? He goes, no. Uh, he, he had been hunting with his, his friends, and a bullet had ricocheted off of a rock and caught him in the chest, punctured his lung, he had a collapsed lung, and he had internal bleeding, and they were like uh, miles from uh, half a mile, a quarter mile. And he said, no, he laid there on the ground. He couldn't do anything, couldn't go anywhere. Jesus couldn't go anywhere. Physically, he was spent. And so he endured the physical pain that killed some. Some died before they got to where Jesus had to have help. And the emotional pain that would ruin most of us. 
for us. For us. He did it for us. To show his love and to remind us, I think O'Donnell is correct when he says, it is cross now and crown later. We live now in the time of the cross. We're waiting for the crown. Uh, It's not yet. It's not yet. Then there's the actual crucifixion. Fascinating to me in the Bible. Read verse 35, okay? Just look at verse 35. And it says, and when they had crucified him. That's it. When they crucified him is literally in the Greek one word. When they, I said, when they crucified is one word. Him is a separate word. When they crucified. That's all the description we have. What do you mean? They crucified him. That's it? There's no description of it. There's no explanation of it. It's just there. Crucifixion uh, was not pleasant. Okay. Upon reaching Golgotha, the place of the skull, they... Uh, <laughs> They uh, gave him some stuff to drink, right? Okay, so I'm backtracking a little bit. I got to verse 35. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But I want you to see they, they had, had come to the place of the skull, which means this, Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they gave him some wine to drink. And some say it's mixed with myrrh. Some say it's mixed with gall. Basically, it was just some vinegar, some rank vinegar that they gave him to drink that possibly had some sedative effect. And Jesus tasted it and he said, no, I want none of it in fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse 21. He didn't want any part of it because he was going to drink the full cup of suffering that the Father had laid out for him. Father, if it's possible, you let this cup pass from me. He says, no, not my will Uh, but your will be done. And so he was willing to drink the full cup to experience the full measure of the pain that was associated with it. And then it says, when they had crucified him. The crucifixion was the cruelest form of execution the Romans employed for the worst of criminals. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 Uh, describes it this way. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, you know, uh, the crucifixion, and many of you have heard this, and, uh, I, but I think it bears repeating because we, we tend to sanitize it. They laid the, the person on their back with a cross beam, and then they drove big spikes between the, the bones Uh, just above the, the hand. And then they put the feet together and drove a, a spike through the feet. Then they raised the, the cross up and dropped it into a hole so that the full weight of the person was resting on the pressure points. And in order to breathe, the person had to push down on their feet to raise up their hands so that diaphragm would be released enough so that they could get enough oxygen. After a certain length of time, exhaustion set in, cramping in the muscles set in, so that they were no longer able to raise themselves up to get their breath. And so either through dehydration, through exhaustion, through asphyxiation, and this could take days, they finally, eventually expired. Well, that was all expedited in the case of Jesus. 
Frederick Farrar in The Life of Christ comments, One thing is clear, the first century executions were not like the modern ones, for they did not seek a quick, painless death. On the contrary, they sought an agonizing torture which completely humiliated the criminal. Jesus endured six excruciatingly painful hours on the cross. For us. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him. By his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused... The Lord has caused, the Lord has caused, that is Yahweh, God Almighty has caused the wrongdoing of us all to fall on Him. This is God's plan. That His Son should suffer in our place. And the soldiers... Yeah, well, they were just gambling away to get his clothes at the foot of the cross. In fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 18, and they mockingly and callously gambled for his clothes, and then they watched, in, watched him in his misery. And so Jesus endured the brutality of the cross for us. Finally, our Lord endured the hostility of the cynics. And the, the sting of cynicism Jesus felt came from two sources. First of all, from his circumstances. We notice in verse 37 and verse 38, it says, And they put up above him, his head, the charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Remember that phrase? Hail, Jesus, King of the Jews. The soldiers, remember now we have Pilate saying, here it is. In contempt, in Pilate's contempt for the religious leaders, he put this above Jesus' head, the charge of his crime. This was his crime. The king of the Jews. And so where the soldiers are mocking Jesus, hail Jesus, king of the Jews. And Pilate is in contempt saying, this is his crime, king of the Jews. They both confirm the reality of who Jesus is. They do it mockingly and unknowingly that they're declaring the truth in all, for all to see, for all to hear, for all to know. And then there's the company that joined him. Jesus was crucified with two robbers, one on each side. In fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. Isaiah 53, verse 12 says he was numbered among the transgressors. Most of you probably won't know the name, but Harold Morris was uh, convicted of, of a crime when he was riding in a car with some guys who robbed a convenience store, robbed a store, and I'm not sure if somebody was murdered or whatever, don't know the details, I, I, I didn't trace that out. He was um, <clears throat> convicted of a crime he never committed, but he was guilty by association. Okay, the company he kept defined him. 
Jesus was crucified with two guilty robbers, or insurrectionists might be a better term, but his company did not define him because that's not who he was. The cynics mock him through his circumstances, but also <laughs> because of the true cynics, the critics. And there, there is a parallel, I think, here, and I'm not, this is not unique to me, but there's a parallel here because Jesus is humiliated by three different groups of people, and I see the parallel with Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus is three times tempted. Tempted to deter him from the path that God had by Satan. And so, we see that in both his temptation in the wilderness and his humiliation on the cross, that each of the actors in those cases serve as the mouthpieces of Satan attempting to deter Jesus from the plan that God had for him to redeem lost man for himself. Three groups mock, mock Jesus and mock his apparent impotence. Okay, I mean, here he is on the cross. He's the king of the Jews, right? Well, oh yeah, right. That's a great place for the king of the Jews to be, up on the cross, being crucified and accursed. So they mock his apparent weakness. There are the passers-by in verses 39 and 40, and those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads at him. Psalm 22, verse 7. In fulfillment of that, yes, they're, they're wagging their heads and, and, and cursing, inviting Jesus prove to prove he's the son of God by coming down from the cross. That's how you'll do it. You come down from the cross. Then we'll know that you are who you say you are. You are the son of God. Now, they fulfilled the prophecy through what they're doing. You've seen it, and I've tried to allude to it all the way through the text, that Jesus is all the time fulfilling prophecy, which really reflects the fact that even on the cross, even in the midst of what appears to be his ruin, he is reigning as king. It's all planned. Seems like a conundrum. Seems ridiculous. Seems as Many have said, scandalous. It is. That's the scandal of Christianity. That the king went to the cross before he receives the crown. And so here he is, the passers-by. They're, they're doing that. What, what they witnessed in Jesus, what they witnessed in Jesus was incongruous. It, it didn't fit with their thinking. It was like, it doesn't, doesn't make sense that here he is, the one who professed to be the Son of God, he professed to be the King, but he's, he's powerless to do anything about it. This can't be. That can't be our Messiah. I can't help but wondering about people who are church people. Maybe some listening online or some here that, you know, for them, it's like we, we've heard the gospel. We, we know the Bible. We understand and we go to church, or at least we watch church but what we experience in Jesus that sometimes our desires aren't all met you know I thought this following Jesus was going to mean that life was going to be good and that uh, I would never have any problems and that oh, everything would work out just the way I wanted to do and so what we experience in Jesus and then what, what he fails to remove from our lives just doesn't match with what we think and so our Jesus isn't the Jesus he's not the Messiah we want 
And so the crowd turned against him, just like sometimes uh, we can turn against him. And based on false testimony, they, they, they said that he, he says that if you tear down this temple, you're the one who's going to destroy the temple and rebuild it. Now, remember in Matthew chapter 26, the accusation against Jesus, the false witnesses they brought in, said he said he was going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. Jesus never said that. In John chapter 2, verse 19, he says, if you tear down this temple, I will raise it again in three days, speaking of his body and of his, his death and resurrection. So they twisted it and then used it against him. And he says, uh, he never said that. But they're thinking, well, if you're able to destroy the temple and raise it up, then what, what can you not do? Prove your identity. I remember golfing with somebody once, and we were on a kind of a mediocre golf course, and I'm not really a good golfer. Uh, I used to be a lot better than I am. But uh, if you don't practice, you don't get better, okay, at golf. That's just one of the things about it. Um, I, I usually have one shot in nine holes of golf that brings me back. Okay, so it's like I make that one shot. It's like, I know I can do this. And then uh, the other, you know, I won't say how many shots aren't so good. But anyhow, I'm with this, I'm with this guy, and he's like, he's telling me you know, just how great of a golfer he is, how great of a golfer he is. And I'm thinking in my mind, I didn't say this, which I, uh, I mean, I, okay, I'm not, I just didn't say this, but I thought, well, if you're, if you're such a good golfer, then why don't you prove it on this mediocre course? Here they are, Jesus, prove you are the Son of God by coming down from the cross. You see, when Jesus doesn't satisfy our desires, when he doesn't eliminate all of our problems, we, uh, we tend to turn from Jesus. Or we could turn from Jesus rather than trust him. But he wants us to trust him. But by remaining on the cross... Rather than seeking, what is he? He remained on the cross. He didn't seek his own vindication. He didn't come down and do what he could have done, called 12 legions of angels, and smash them and destroy them and prove who he really was. No, he didn't go for personal liberation and personal vindication. He hung on the cross. He thwarted Satan's plan because Satan's plan was to destroy God's plan to redeem lost humanity from our sins. No. He prevent our redemption. In staying on the cross, Jesus absolutely destroyed the need for any man-made temple. <laughs> and Jesus certainly proved that he is the obedient son of God. He learned obedience, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, through the things that he suffers. And Paul says he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He proved himself to be the son of God through his obedience in staying on the cross. It's God's mission. You see, there is no salvation for lost humanity apart from the crucifixion. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. We sang a song in the, in the first service. And it says, none deserving. Okay, none deserving, but all receiving. Life through death 
at Calvary. None deserving, but all receiving life through death at Calvary. That's why he stayed on the cross. And he was tempted. Come down, come down, come down. How tempting could that have been for the Son of God to just zap him and say, okay, this is over. I'm done with these mongrels. I'm, I'm through. This is, this is detestable. No. He stayed there. Our salvation rests upon his suffering for us. Had he come down, oh, I think they would have thought he was pretty mighty, but they never would have accepted him as the Messiah. No. I mean, they'd be like, the, remember the story of Rich Man and Lazarus? And uh, Rich Man and Lazarus, and Rich Man goes uh, to, 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 to Sheol and down to the bosom of the, the devil, and, and uh, uh, Lazarus goes into the bosom of Abraham, and Lazarus uh, is up there enjoying it, and the rich man says, oh, oh, send somebody, send somebody, send somebody. Uh, can, can I go from where you're, I'm at to where he's at? Nope, can't happen. Uh, and then, well, but, well, then send somebody to my, to my relatives. You know, they're, they're in trouble. This is Luke 16, verses 30 through 31, if you care. And so he says, if I send a prophet from the dead, your family's not going to receive or accept it. That's where these people are. Because he stayed on the cross, because he was buried, because he rose again the third day, all of us who believe he is the Messiah are saved from our sin. We're redeemed. So that even though we're imperfect followers of Jesus, even though we stumble and fall and, and falter, which we all do, we still are named among the beloved because he went to the cross. He died for you and me because he suffered in our place. That's the marvel of the cross. Jesus, find their testimony. Verse 42, you are the king of the Jews. And notice how they say he is the king of Israel. He is the king of Israel, but they're saying it mockingly. But what they mock is the reality. And along with their, their other people's activity, when they cast lots, you know, for his clothing, they're fulfilling the scripture. When, when, when they're wagging their heads, they're fulfilling the scripture. When he's nailed between two criminals, it's a fulfillment of, of Isaiah. Psalms 22 and, Psalm, and Isaiah 53 are all over the place in this. And every time he's fulfilling it, he's declaring that in spite of his apparent ruin, he is reigning. He's the king. He's the king. Look at Psalm 22, verse 8. I think we have that. Do we have that one? Maybe not. Well, verse 43 says this. Um, he trusts in God. Let him deliver him now. So you had the, at first we had these passers-by, then we have the Sanhedrin, okay? So in their arrogance and defiance, uh, they use the same tactics, okay? And they say, he cannot save others. Uh, he saved others, can he not save himself? I think that's a question, okay? That's, that's where I'm at in, in verses 41 through 43. He saved others. What do you mean he saved others, he can't save himself? That's, I think it's a question, inflection. Jesus what did Jesus do? He cured diseases. He healed the blind. 
He even raised the dead. And they had seen it. They had witnessed it. And so they're saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. No, it's not a matter that he can't save himself. He absolutely can save himself, but he chose not to save himself. He chose not to save himself for you and for me. Then there are the criminals. This is, this is the end of it. Uh, verse 44. And the robbers, that's how the NASB puts it, I, insurrectionists, also who had been crucified with him were casting the same insult. Do you see in the text, it is the, the, the first people, the passers-by, they're making these claims. Oh, he's the, he's the son of God. If he's the son of God, he can come down. He's the king of Israel. He should come down. You see that the Sanhedrin, they're parroting the same thing. Now we have the criminals on the cross, and one of them for sure, with his dying last breath, was taunting Jesus. Demanding to be saved from suffering. Do you see the contrast here in both the wilderness temptations and here Jesus rejected the offer of ruling without suffering. He could have had a lot. He could have ruled a lot. He could have been important and powerful without suffering. And he restrained his anger. He painfully died to accomplish our redemption. And you know what? In that, we should rejoice. But we should also be realistic. Because what Jesus experienced is what he expects from us. There will be suffering for those who follow Jesus. John 15, if the world hates you, remember they hated me before they hated you. It's coming to us. Keener puts it accurately. He says, those of us who value dignity, our dignity too much to live with unjust criticisms and the world's hatred must seek a different Messiah to follow. You don't want unjust criticism? You don't want to be labeled a fanatic? You don't want to be labeled a Jesus freak? You don't want to be labeled as uh, intolerant? Or whatever comes at you? You need to follow a different Savior. Because I would say to you that we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ ought to, I hope we do, we should declare with compassion and conviction, not condensa condensa condensation, condescension, okay, uh, that sin deserving of God's judgment is endemic of all humanity. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that sin in every form, whether it's pride or whether it's greed or whether it's jealousy, whether it's racism, or sexual perversion, the taking of an unborn life, condemns us. But only God in Christ can redeem us. And God in Christ can redeem us from all of that. And rescue us. Give us purpose. That's what we proclaim. And because we proclaim it, and because it's true of us, Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, that he himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross, that we might die to sin. Now notice this. If we die to sin because of what Jesus has done, we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, our redemption affects our life. We would live for righteousness. 
And when we proclaim the truth, and when we practice the truth, we become anathema to those who are contrary to the truth. And we will be unjustly criticized. And we will be condemned. And uh, you can just write this down, look it up later. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14 reminds us that that's going to happen, okay, for those of us who are, who are, are believers. One criminal actually saw the light on the cross and, and repented and trusted in Christ and became a believer. I, I want to I ask, as we wrap it up here, how do you see Jesus? Is he a stumbling block? It's like, I don't know. This, 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 he died on the cross. How can that be a good thing? Uh, how can that be the, the crowning moment of, of Christianity? Well, it isn't. That's next week. But uh, this is an essential part of our Christian faith, is that our Savior died. He died to set us free. And those who believe are free indeed. Do you stumble over Christ? Do you stumble over a Christ crucified? Calvary spotlights our depravity. It shows how wicked we can be to crucify the sinless Son of God. And that's for all humanity. I mean, we're all, we're all guilty of that charge. But it also shows His mercy. He stayed there. He stayed there so we could be free. You could be free if you put your faith and your trust in Christ and turn from your sinful, self-directed life and accept what Jesus did on the cross as a payment for your sin. Then you will not suffer what he suffered. You will not suffer an eternity apart from God. You will be free. That's God's word, not mine. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The moment you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, you have eternal life that only culminates in glory. That's the promise. And for us as believers, God's mercy should compel us to be grateful, to take up our cross every day to live for Him. Kingdom-centered living, proclaiming the good news that He will set you free as He set us free. And grateful service as we worship Him. See, the cross, I think, compels us as believers, should compel me and us as believers, to believe in Jesus. Actually, it should compel all people to believe in Jesus. It should compel all believers and all people to behave like Jesus. And it should compel all of us to be willing to suffer as Jesus suffered. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. I'm going to read that. If I get there. Problem with this. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 says this. For you, to you it has been granted for Jesus' sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 3, he says, Therefore, since we have so, so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let's rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance a race that is set before us, 
looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then he says, for consider, and this is part of it, for consider him who endured such contradiction by sinners against yourself, what? That you may not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus never asked us to do anything more than he did for us. But he asked us to do everything he did for us. He asked us to die to ourselves, and to take up our cross and follow him. That's what it means to be a child of God. Consider him who endured such contradiction by sinners against himself that you see that we see the essence of our own wickedness and that we repent of our sin and rejoice in his mercy and then we're motivated to live for him daily and that we're willing to endure and suffer for him because he suffered for us. You might not grow weary. I don't know if you're weary. I get weary. Sometimes I get so tired of fighting a fight. And I see brothers and sisters in Christ. I see my own life and I go, Shush. I thought I should be a little further along the path, Lord, than I am right now. And I wish that I was. And then I, I wake up and someday I think, well, okay, I'm making progress. And then boom. And then I do some knucklehead thing. And I go, oh, but God in Christ still loves me. And I don't deserve it. But he does. And he loves you too if you're his child. And he loves you even if you're not his child. He wants you to become his child so that he can keep loving you and perfecting you because he says that he, he who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's not come back yet, so we're all in progress. We're all in process. And I'm glad that we're in process and we're not in purgatory. And I'm glad we're all in process and we're not punished. That's the marvel of the cross. And what a fitting way to conclude Calvary's attention on believing in Jesus and behaving like Jesus and being willing to endure like Jesus than to come and celebrate communion. And as we take the bread and we take the cup, we remember a price that has been paid. Visible reminders of the price that's been paid. So that our pardon could be secured. And that we would have power to live the path that has been promised. A path of hardship until glory. Cross now, crown later. And so it's been our practice up until this point in time and this year and actually for the last two or three two years uh, that you had a little cup and thing on your seat not today today we're kind of going back to where we used to be a little bit there's a table at the back and there's a table at the front the praise team's going to come and they're going to uh, play some songs and what I'm going to ask you to do is if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior you are more than welcome to partake of these elements. But I warn you, as Paul warned the believers in Corinth, to do so in a worthy manner. So you search your heart and you pray and you confess known sin before you come up. And as you come up, when you come up, and we're going to ask you to, on your own, get up. So some of you might will freak you out a little bit. Don't, don't worry about it. Nobody has to come up. 
Everybody can, okay? I'm not checking your salvation card at the door, okay? That's between you and Jesus. But when you do come up, there are tongs for you to individually take out a piece of bread and drop it in your hand, okay? So we don't really want any uh, fingers fishing through the bread. And then there's an individual, then there's an individual cup, uh, so you can take it back to your seat and take the elements, or you can do it right up here when you get here, however you see fit. Most people will probably grab it and go, and that's good for us. There'll be garbage on the way out for your little cup, okay? I'm going to close in prayer. Praise team will come. You do your business with God, and as you feel led, you come up and take the elements. Father in heaven, um, I just really know that as I've worked through this text, Father, you're working in me still. And I pray that you would continue to work in each of us for your glory and the gain of your kingdom. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you went to the cross, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. And I pray, dear God, that we might celebrate that and that we might commit ourselves to live for you in the midst and response to it. In Jesus' name we pray.